Good morning. Good morning. Um, welcome to Redeemer Women's Bible Study. It is Tuesday morning right now. I'm not sure what day it is if you're looking, watching online, but welcome to this space with us as well. Um, before we get started, we, um, after all of our pauses due to weather um, and other things, um, I've read on the calendar one more time, right? And so if, so we're still ending, which I love, um, just with the crucifixion and resurrection right before Easter, timely in the liturgical calendar. Um, if we get another delay, because it's still only February, we could still get snow, let's be honest, or, or more, most likely ice. Um, if we delay again, then we will push past um, Easter and just start pushing past because I think we have this space reserved for a little bit longer. So, um, but maybe this will be the only calendar that, that we have to keep for the rest of the time. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Lord, we pray for all those on the roads this morning. Thank you for the rain, but everything is wet. And so we just pray that you keep everyone safe as they travel. Lord, thank you for the rain and also for this odd warmth today. Little glimpses that spring is coming. Thank you for continually moving us forward day by day. So Lord, I lift up this time to you, this sweet Tuesday, and pray that it would be glorifying to you that all outside distractions would flee, that you would fill this space with your presence, that we might feel you more than the chairs and the ground, that you would fill the spaces of those watching online or listening, that wherever they are, that they would feel you too. Thank you that you love us so. Thank you for your son that you sent him. Lord, help us to know you more by his story. Thank you for your sweet servant, Mark, and just his literary genius and how he writes your story. And he so, so much wants us to know who you are. So Lord, I pray that that happens today. May I disappear, that you would be made great, and that these words would be yours. Amen. Okay, welcome on this Tuesday. And I do have to say, and I kind of love this, um, it is Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. So it truly is Tuesday. It's all twos. And I saw something this morning that this is palindrome week. That's where something forwards and backwards is the same. Every date this week is a palindrome. That's crazy, right? But God's funny. Um, anyway, so we're here. We're in chapter 10. I can't believe we're already in chapter 10 of Mark. Um, Mark 9, that was a full chapter. And really, as we get going and as we end out this semester, each, each week is going to be full and rich. At the end of chapter 9, we, in, in chapter 9, we saw a lot happening. The transfiguration happened. But then we also saw that even though the transfiguration, transfiguration happened, he comes down from the mountain and has this Moses moment realizing that people still don't understand who he is. The disciples, we saw them asking who is the greatest. And we talked about the cost of discipleship. And he basically told them that it's not who is the best or who has the most worth, but it, it depends on your salt likeness, how salty you are. And so then chapter 10 opens up. And so, so chapter 9 ends 
with talking about our saltness and what it really means to follow him. And so chapter 10 opens, chapter 10, verse 1, and it says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So we see Jesus on the move. The end of chapter 9 was the end of his Galilean ministry. So from chapter 10 forward, and we've been talking about this, that Mark's whole goal is to get us to the cross. From chapter 10 forward, he is doggedly, he is, the grip on our hands is tighter. He is pulling us to Jerusalem. So Jesus' Galilean ministry is, has ended, and so now he has started this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And in this language here, this, this, um, this regional direction that Mark has given us, the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, this suggests that he went south, he's going south across the mountains of Samaria into Judea. And he's on this original route that the pilgrims would make throughout all the Old Testament to the holy city. So Jesus is, Jesus is on this pilgrimage to the holy city and he's teaching them. So he is on the move teaching now, in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees came up, as they do, in order to test him. So he comes up and he tests them and they ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Seemingly left field question. Or right field. I don't know baseball. Anyway, he answered them, What did Moses command you? So he immediately, as he has done every time he's questioned, he goes straight to Scripture. What, has Moses, what did Moses command? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Which is true. This is from Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So they were asking him from the law, Deuteronomy 24, about divorce. Now, they came to test him, right? This entire time we see them, there's this plan to try and trip Jesus up. Well, what we know about this area where he was, and this is fascinating to me, he was in Herod's jurisdiction. So remember Herod, right, married to Herodias, who keeps jumping from uncle to uncle, marrying them. John the Baptist, his main issue with Herod was his immoral and somewhat illegal marriage to Herodias. And it ended up getting John the Baptist beheaded. The Pharisees know where he is. He's in Herod's land. So they asked the question that if Herod heard it, that Jesus was speaking out against his life, maybe the Pharisees would get lucky twice and somebody else would get beheaded. So when Jesus is saying these things, there's two things that we should know about this, is that this is not the Sermon on the Mount. He is not saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are you. He's not going all of these blesseds. And then, by the way, no one should get divorced, right? He is, he is answering the Pharisees who were trying to trip him up, trying to trip him, trying to test him. And notice how he answers. They're asking from the law, 
And what do we know about the law? The law was given in order to show us our weaknesses, in order to show us that we needed God and needed a Savior because we were not able to live a holy life on our own. But Jesus elevates his answer, and he elevates his answer taking it all the way back to creation, back to what marriage actually is. He pulls from Genesis 1:27 and 2:24 the creation of Adam and Eve, and the creation of marriage. And marriage truly is the, this symbol, this image, this beautiful relationship that shows us our relationship with the Lord. And so they're trying to trip him up in the law, but he takes it all the way back to what marriage actually is. It shows us our relationship with God, what our true relationship should be. And so in verse 10, it goes on, and in the house, the disciples asked him again. So this is in private. They ask him again about this, this matter. And he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So in this, Jesus rounds out the answer and he creates this equalness because within the law, it was a little bit easier on men. It protected women, but it was a little bit easier on men. But in both of these instances, he's saying that they both commit adultery. Now, when we read this, remember when we're reading Scripture, we have to look at Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, right? And this topic, divorce, is something that we socially all know well. And so for this morning... For this morning when we talk about it, right, it was the Pharisees trying to trip him up, trying to get him beheaded the way John the Baptist was, or at least get him in trouble the way John the Baptist got in trouble. Maybe he'll just go to jail and quit talking, right? But for, to think about it and what Jesus really was said and what his true answer was is that he, he, rather than talking about divorce, his true answer was talking about what marriage is, and so this morning, if you want to go deeper, and if this is something that you, if you really want to dig deeper into all of the ins and outs of the law and what it says, then we would say that's a conversation that's above my lay teacher pay grade to go into those things. And so go to, a, go to the pastoral staff to talk about it. Our small groups aren't a place to hash these things out because truly this is something that has affected many of us, some of us that we don't even know, right? And it's, we're going to find that as we move forward in the rest of the gospel, that we are all going to be talking and having to look at the deeper parts and areas of our hearts, right? And so the conversations are going to get a little bit more tense because how can they not get more tense when we're faced with seeing our Savior suffer, die, and rise again? When we truly realize who he is, right? And, you know, this weekend, um, I, with my kids, I play this game called Keep Pitch Giveaway for all of our stuff. It's like, what do we want to keep? What's broken that needs to be thrown away? And what? And our abundance of things can we give away, right? They love it. Not really. And so I've, I've moved our playroom upstairs. It's now in the kids' rooms. And so we're sorting toys, right? And we, I have baskets. And so there's like a Legos basket, a blocks basket, a miscellaneous basket, and something else. 
And so we're just like tossing the toys, all three of us, into these baskets. And Henry um, is, loves tossing things into the baskets. And I've never thought of a Pez dispenser as a weapon before, because um, it's light, right? I've, it's ne it's never, I've never thought about it wounding someone. It's a Pez dispenser. Well, he picks one up, um, and he tosses it. And when he taught, trying to be helpful, tosses it, he hits me right here. I have never felt such pain on my face. And it was right, I was reading, I read scripture on Sunday morning, and so I immediately think, I'm going to have an egg on my head like a two-year-old when I'm, you know, reading up front, um, because that's how bad it hurt, right? There's barely a mark. It doesn't even hurt anymore. But in that moment, something that he didn't realize and that I didn't realize that was tossed out was actually hurtful. And so when we're talking about the deep personal truths of Scripture, we need to remember that sometimes when we throw our words out, we have no idea the weight of them in someone else's life. Even if we think we're being helpful, like Henry, we have no idea. And so I say that about this beginning of this chapter, but then I also say that because as we get closer to the cross, you're, the questions for the homework are going to get more personal, right? And as we enter into Lent, we're really going to start wrestling with what the gospel really means, not, of course, corporately, but also personally. And so just remember that in our conversations together, that we speak with love, but also sometimes we don't even have to say something, right? Because sometimes the Pez dispenser actually does hurt. And now I can tell you that it does. So moving on. So they have this deep conversation. They're having these conversations, and it really was just trying to trip him up, right? And so then Mark moves us. We don't know if this is the same day. We don't know if it's the same week, but he is moving towards Jerusalem. In verse 13, it says, and they were bringing children to him right? And what we know about children back then, they were not, they were not thought of very highly, right? They weren't, they, I mean, they were loved, sure, by their parents, but socially they had no standing. And so they, and that word there in the original language, it's a, it's a formal word, and it is speaking to dads. So it, it, the, the, it wasn't like, I would think moms were bringing them. It's a, it's a masculine they, the dads, were bringing children to him, which I just think is beautiful. The dads were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so this is one of those statements that Jesus turns social order upside down. He's saying that the, for such people, like, like children, this is what the kingdom of God belongs to. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, so that it was the suggestion they were small children, right? Henry-sized children. He took them into his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. And so from this, from this part of, this, of, the, of the passage of our chapter, we see Mark starting to tell us the deeper truths of what's going on here. If I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. 
And then he moves to this young man, not a child, but all of the, all of the terminology that he used, it's a young man. And as he was setting out on his journey, so he's setting out, he's moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards Jerusalem, setting out on his journey, a man runs up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we're going to see in most of Jesus' answers throughout the rest of this chapter that he continually submits himself to his good father. He submits himself to the higher God above him. Why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Excuse me. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking, on him, looking at him, loved him. So it's interesting, in the, the list of commandments that Jesus speaks to this man, says to him, you know the commandments, they are only from the second half. Right? Do not murder is six. Commit adultery is seven. Do not steal, eight. Bear false witness, nine. And... He ends with honor your father and mother, verse five, uh, commandment five. Now, in the middle, he talks about do not defraud. And it's, it's fascinating. There's different views on what this means. Some say that this is him saying do not covet in a different way. Some are saying that it is combining eight and nine together. But the whole idea of do not defraud actually speaks to everyone mentioned here. It suggests, it's suggesting here that if you don't follow these, then you're not actually following the Lord, which the first half of the commandments speak to. He who, do not lo- who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love the God who he has not seen, 1 John 4.20. And so he's, there's this idea of do not defraud, do not defraud your neighbor or your brother. And so it can speak over all of them. And I love that word, do not steal. It's like, do not steal love from someone that you should be giving them. But in his, Jesus knew how this conversation was going to go. He looks at him and loves him. And so this should give us comfort in that when we're struggling with something, right, the Lord looks on you with compassion, He knew who this man was. He knew his heart, right? Because we know that he knows his heart because of the thing that he says to him next. But he still loved him in his sin. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what we see here is that the law that he thought he had been following doggedly, that he thought he'd been following, hadn't done its job. What the law was supposed to do was to show your reliance, your deep neediness for the Lord, at your inability to follow it. But he, in his mind, followed it perfectly. 
So it hadn't shown him where he lacked. It hadn't showed him his neediness. And so this speaks to, this speaks to, we're going to see Jesus go back to what he said about the children. Jesus looks around and he says to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now, it should be noted here is that he's not saying, if you have money, you're not going to heaven, right? He's just talking about what tripped this man up. And I dare say that in America, all of us are far richer than many other people in the world. How easy is it for us to become caught up in the monotony of our lives, right? In our blessings. We don't, there, we could go throughout our entire day sometimes apart from the pandemic and all of this stuff, but we could go through our whole day not needing anything. There are many people in the world who have, they don't have food at all, nothing, running water, right? And so what, what Jesus is saying here is that having things is very easily the number one thing that will trip us up from realizing our need of him. And so the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult, calling them children, right? Bring, bringing the theme together, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, it is impossible. And this is, the, this is the gospel right here. With man, it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, the camel was easily the largest mammal in the, in the area where they were. So, like, maybe someone had seen an elephant, but in the area, in Judea, in Jerusalem, where they were living, in the Middle East, the camel was the largest animal that you could see. And so he is taking the largest living being that they could have seen in their lives, right? Far bigger than a horse or a donkey or a cow, definitely sheep. The largest animal with the tiniest opening, right? So it is a drastic, like impossible thing. But what he's talking about is the very reason why this man this rich young ruler was having a hard time and why the law should point us to our need of him. There is absolutely no way on your own that we will get into the kingdom. The only way, the only way into the kingdom is when we acknowledge our absolute, utter reliance on God. Isn't that what it means to say, I am a sinner in need of grace? Right? Sweet little Ruthie on Sunday, she stood up here and she said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And she took her first communion. That, a child, the belief of a child, that's what this is talking about. That's the camel through the eye of the needle, right? 
But how mind-blowing for them to hear, these, to hear these things. He is turning social order upside down. Upside down. And Peter, God bless Peter, he began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Right? We're like in, right? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first, so he's saying yes. Yes, you have given everything up. But you need to think about it differently. Back to who's the saltiest. Many who are first will be last. If you think you should be first, you're actually going to be last. But the last, he says, are going to be first. And then he goes into one of the most beautiful beautiful teachings. He, he gives us the third passion prophecy. So this is the third time that he's told them what's going to happen to him, and it's the most detailed. And so Mark, this beautiful writer, is just, is just pulling us through this. So Jesus is saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. And as they were on the road going to Jerusalem, so this is the first time it said it out loud, they're going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking ahead of them. This is a, the rabbis often did this when they were walking with their students. He was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And then taking the 12 again, just to them, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's psalm language. That's pilgrim language. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Now, in all three passion prophecies, all three times that he speaks of his death, there are little details, but in this one, he is very specific. And we're going to see Mark tell us each one of these details in the coming chapters. He's delivered over to the chief priests and scribes in chapter 14, verse 53. He is sentenced to death in 1464. He is delivered to the Romans in 15, verses 1 and 10. He is mocked and spit on and persecuted in, verse, in chapter 14, 65. In chapter 15, 15 through 20, he is executed in 15, 20 through 39, in 44. And then he is resurrected, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So he has explicitly told them what is about to happen. Word for word, moment for moment. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee in verse 35, they come up to him. So he's, he's explained what was going to happen. Now, granted, can you imagine, right? 
But we know what he's told them in chapters past is that the only way you're going to understand who I am is when you see this happen, right? And it hasn't happened yet. So they don't, they don't get it yet. So James and John in verse 35, they come up, the sons of Zebedee come up to him and say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you, right? And they feel like teenage boys to me when they ask that. What, we want you to do for us what we ask of you, please. Or maybe it's how, sometimes how I pray. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Right? I mean, this is a fascinating conversation. In verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in glory. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they say to him, we are able. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so we see that they still aren't catching that it's not about how great you are. It's not about places of honor. And in fact, what Jesus is saying in this suffering servant language, this passion, passion narrative that he keeps trying to tell them, that it is not about being lifted up, but actually laid down. It is not about being lauded over and celebrated, but it is actually about being persecuted and killed. It is about sacrificing yourself. The king that they thought they wanted on the throne initially actually had to be killed in order to ascend the throne. We often want the glory, but we don't want the sacrifice that goes with it. And in truth, the, the cup that he's talking about is the cup of wrath of God, the cup of wrath that had to be poured out on someone, had to be consumed. It is the cup of wrath that in the tabernacle, when they were, had to atone for their sins all the time, they daily had to, like, they had to atone for their sins because of the wrath of God. And the baptism that he's, talked, that he's talking about here, we, in the very beginning, it's the waters of judgment. You know, we baptize sweet little babies, but it's talking about they are covered by the grace of God. But remember, the Hebrews went into the water and came back out on the other side. The, the Egyptians did not. It's those judgment waters that Jesus, that Jesus is talking about to go down and come back up, to be judged by God. The only one who could would be Jesus. And then we see the true servant heart when even in this conversation he is submitting to the Father. It is not, he says, it's not my place to grant where you want to sit. It's God's place. So we see this truly humble, beautiful heart of the suffering servant. Because just as he knew the rich young ruler and knew his heart, knew his problem, he also knows ours. But he also knew where he was headed. He is on, he has let us go up to Jerusalem. He is headed to Mount Moriah. 
Just like when Abraham was walking, knowing that Jesus, that God had asked him to sacrifice his son, he knew, it says he looked up and saw. The same word saw is provide. He looked up and knew that the Lord provide, didn't know how, right? And so Jesus is looking up, he's heading up to Jerusalem, but he knows that the Lord will provide by using him. Rather than a ram, it's the lamb. And he knows that's where he's headed. But when the ten heard it, right, and when the ten heard it, because James and John were, they began to be indignant at James and John. So they, they were kind of annoyed that they'd asked that because they probably wanted that too. And Jesus called them to them and said, You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There are great ones, and they exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first of you must be a slave for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's explaining this. He's saying this servant, it's about laying your life down. It's not about the glory. Glory is going to come. But on this earth, you're probably not going to get it. Because the way that I'm going is the way of the cross. And so in this journey, as they're moving forward, they come to Jericho. Jericho was five miles west of the Jordan and 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And it was the, the elevation was very, very low. So it was, it's below Jerusalem. So the, from, Jerusalem, from Jericho to Jerusalem, it was a steep walk up. So they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And truly the wording is, he was sitting on the way, Right? And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? Calling son of David. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Right? Because they, they wanted to see Jesus. And here's this beggar crying out, causing a commotion. But he cried out all the more. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Right? Isn't that beautiful? Take heart. Jesus is calling you. Jesus wants to talk to you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? A seemingly harsh question, right? He's a beggar, probably obviously blind, sitting on the way in Jericho in the lowest of low places, literally and physically and spiritually, all the things. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says to him, go your way. Go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the first healing that we see where Jesus doesn't tell the person to be quiet about it, probably because he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on the way. But it isn't, isn't it so beautiful? We see Bartimaeus in his blindness sitting on the way, not going. But as soon as he's healed, he is following Jesus on the way. 
we see throughout this chapter and the chapters before it that spiritual blindness, the spiritual blindness of those who follow Jesus, not understanding it, but then here Mark shows us this beautiful miracle, and it's the last miracle in this gospel that he records. And isn't it so fitting that the last miracle that Mark records is that of someone gaining their sight? Chapter 11 opens, and we're going to see the triumphal entry. We're seeing, going to see Jesus enter Jerusalem. So right before he enters Jerusalem, we see someone recovering their sight. And doesn't that call us all to look into our hearts? What are the things that stumble, make you stumble, or hinder your walk on the way? What are the things that cause you to have blind spots to what may or may not be hindering your faith or your walk, your ability to love others? What we're going to see as we get closer to the cross that we're, that we're truly going to have to come face to face with our own hearts and what it truly means to follow after him. Because truly what he said to the young man is that, yes, you might do all of these things, but you're holding on more to your actions than what, the, than what following the law should be doing. Do we hold on more to how we live our lives than Jesus himself? Are we more worried about what we look like or what we might gain than just loving him for who he was? Recognizing him as that suffering servant who came, suffered, died, and rose again that you might be covered with his grace. That we might all be able to say, I am a sinner in need of him. Do you recognize your neediness for him? And I say that to myself. It's not a little question, it's a large question. Because we are a self-sufficient society. There are 10,000 and more self-help books out there. There are people who will stand up and tell you how to change your life just by doing 10 steps. Read this book, practice this, meditate on that, drink this juice, but it's also like the symptom of sin is self-help because the reality is, is that we can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And so as, as you move into chapter 11, as you look through that homework and as you, as you get ready for these coming weeks and for Lent, that's starting so very soon, may we all enter in with this heart of recognizing our neediness, neediness for him and knowing that that, that's what it's about, because we do need him. And it's safe to need him, because not only does he already know that, he's already provided for it. So, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Mark's words. Lord, I pray that you would bless my friends, bless their study of your word. Lord, we thank you that when your word goes out, that it does not come back to you void. We thank you that it is living and active. I pray that it would be a healing word to us, a cleansing word to us, that we might understand ourselves better, but see you more. Because of who we, we see you as, Father, that we would lean into you all the more and trust you. Lord, we thank you for our belief, but I ask, I just pray that you would heal our unbelief. 
that you would help us all be little children before you, that we would delight in you. Show us the way, Father. Amen. Thank you, ladies.